Welcome to the Redeemer Lincoln Square podcast. Our church began in April of 2017 and is located just down the street from Lincoln Center in the Lincoln Square neighborhood of Manhattan. Our channel will primarily feature sermons from our Sunday worship service, as well as encouraging stories and conversations with members of our LSQ church family. We hope you'll subscribe as a way to stay connected during this season of uncertainty and social distancing. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all of the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven, and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Maya. Good morning, and welcome to Redeemer Lincoln Square. Whether you are new here today or you've been here since the beginning, as Bruce mentioned, we are trying to build a church that values questions and those who ask them. We're trying to build a church where you are known, loved, and cared for. We're trying to build a church where we are not just for ourselves, but for others. Those are our values. But how are we actually going to do that? What's that actually going to look like? And it all comes down to, it boils down to this day right here, Easter. What we're celebrating right now contains the unique message only found in Christianity. I don't know if you ever heard the phrase, in one ear and out the other. My mother says that to me a lot. What I'm saying to you is in one ear and out the other. A lot of times, Easter is like that for us. 
You might have heard the story of Easter before, but it's gone in one ear and then out the other. Some of you are here and you might have heard the Easter message before, but perhaps you can't hear it because you have serious doubts about the credibility of the Christian faith, the reliability of the scriptures. And it's possible that you have that because it's bothering you for for maybe your entire life, because you have questions. And yet all those questions, they boil down to really two essential ones, which are this. Is it true, and then does this really matter? Is this really true, and does this really matter? And So I would like us today, I would like us to work through those two questions, and the best way I know how to do that is to look at this text, which gives us three things about Jesus that answer those questions. Here are the three things. This text shows us that Jesus listens to our questions, he gives us the answer, and then he can make it real to you. I'll say it again. The text shows us that he listens to our questions. He gives us the answer, and then he can make that actually real to you. So first, he listens to your questions. Look at the very, turn back to the beginning of the passage, and what we see here is Cleopas and another disciple. They're walking along. They're discussing what's been going on. Jesus shows up in verse 17, and he says, in verse 17, what are you discussing? And by the way, he doesn't, he has a follow-up question. What things? Verse 19. Pull back for a second. I don't know where everybody is on the spectrum of faith and belief in this room. But no matter what you believe, just for a moment, let's assume Jesus is who he says he is. Let's assume that he actually did uh, do what he said he did. And then, that, with that, if that's true, then what that means is right here, when he's walking along with these guys, on this day, this is the actual day he had risen from the grave. That Jesus, if that's true, then at this moment, he's literally done the most important thing in all of human history. That he, he, he uh, redeemed the world cosmically. And instead of cutting these guys off and saying, hey, dum-dums, guess what? I just did the most important thing in all of human history. He doesn't interrupt them. He doesn't say, guess what? What does he do? He says, what's going on? He says, what happened? What he's doing there is he's listening. He's listening to them. And I actually find this quite ironic because look at the next verse, verse 18. They look at him and say, <laughs> they look at him and say, do you not know what's actually going on? Do you not, have you not seen what's happened? Which is funny because actually probably at this moment, he's the only person that actually knows what's going on. And yet what is he doing? He's entering into their issues, their troubled hearts. It says that they were bothered. That it says that they were hurting And so what is he doing here? When he says, what's going on? Jesus is Jesus. He already knows what's going on. He's only asking these questions because he was giving them the platform. He's giving them the space to process their fears, to say their doubts, to work through their issues, their hurts, their cares, their worries. And because he does so, that means He prioritizes their questions and their issues more than anything else, even the resurrection itself. And because he does that, what that means for you and me 
It means he prioritizes your questions and your doubts and your issues and your uh, fears. More importantly than anything else. That's actually why when Redeemer Lincoln Square started, we said we value questions and those who ask them. And so what that means for us before we move on is this. If you're not a Christian here or you're not sure if you're a Christian, your questions matter. They, you are empowered to ask them. We should go before Jesus and say them. If you are a Christian, the good news is your questions matter too. You should work through, you don't, don't, you, you should work through those. You should bring them before him. But there's also something else here for, here for Christians too. Is that we must then also ask ourselves, how patient are we with the questions of others? How patient are we with the questions of the world? The world is asking lots of questions right now. And I think there's a lot of Christians out there who don't listen. We don't want to hear them. And what this text is telling us is that when Christians don't listen to the questions of others, that's not just bad communication. Jesus himself wouldn't have done that. Jesus himself would not have done that. So what type of person are we? Have we, are we do, allowing ourselves to do this? That's the first thing. Jesus listens to our questions. Now, let me, just, let me just go one step further. I would argue not just that Jesus listens to our questions. The whole text, the whole Bible listens to our questions too. Particularly for modern skeptics. See, l- many scholars point this out. There are numerous factors that show us that the biblical text is actually reliable. Quickly, first thing here. The fact that Luke's account is uh, um, right here, the, the first people to listen to the resurrection account are two nobodies, two rando individuals on the side of the road. That actually matters because if you're trying to win approval to the community, to the people who were re- reading this originally, to the, those in this geographical area, you would usually pick people of importance. You'd pick people who, people go, hey, that person, I know that person's valuable, and therefore I'm going to listen. This is the same reason why the fact that, and look in verse 22, that even this individual realizes that uh, Jesus showed himself to the women at the tomb. Generally speaking, at the time, you never would have used women as your first eyewitnesses because at this time in first century Palestine, their uh, uh, testimony was not admissible in a court of law. But the fact that both to two random individuals and to women, the fact that he does use them as eyewitnesses works against the theory of purposeful invention. You're like, what's the theory of purposeful invention? It's the theory that this, that if you're trying to make up a lie, if you're trying to make up a story, you always use credible people to verify your account. Because you know you're, secretly your view is not credible, so you're, you're relying on somebody else's credit. So the fact that they use these individuals actually, ironically, makes it credible in its first place. It makes it reliable, first thing. Secondly, there's a lot of name dropping happening here. Not just Cleopas' name, the fact that this, this happens seven miles from Jerusalem. The fact that it happens around the village of Emmaus. Those are, um, how do I say this? That's evidence. It's like Luke's way of saying, hey, you know what? You might not believe me. Go see for yourself. Go straight to the source. The original readers were able to, this happened during their lifetime, they could have gone to this geographical area and found a man named Cleopas and found individuals. I bring this up because what scholars point out is that myth 
is always written without specifics. Myth is always written without evidence. And what we find here is not that. What we find here are specifics and evidence and facts. So this is reportage. It's, it's almost as if the text is saying, if you want answers, come and see. Come and work through the evidence. Come and see how credible it is. Now, maybe you're like, okay, thanks, Mike, but um, that's actually not my problem. <laughs> I, 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 my issue is not the credibility of Christianity. I have other problems. I have other questions. One of which I've heard a lot is this. Some people say, hey, I don't know if I can believe in Christianity because of look how awful Christians are. I can't believe in Christianity because look at all the bad things Christians have done. I've been hearing that a lot more recently. Secondly, another question I get a lot of is that maybe Christianity can't be true because, I don't, because the Christian sexual ethic seems regressive to me. Maybe Christianity can't be true because I don't, I don't agree with that ethic. I think those are good questions, but I really believe that we need to ask another question. That's this. Did the resurrection happen or not? Did the resurrection happen or not? Now, some of you are like, whoa, 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 whoa. You're not actually answering the question, are you? You're, you're, you're changing the subject. Respectfully, I think it actually applies because the answer to that question Did Jesus rise from the dead or not? Christians are hypocrites, but if he rose from the dead, then Christianity is true, even if people aren't living in light of it, including Christians. See, if if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then no, you really don't need to believe in the Christian sexual ethic, but then again, you shouldn't believe in any of it then. But if Jesus did rise from the dead, then Christianity has rational, thoughtful answers for us. Christianity then is not uh, blind belief. It's the opposite of that. Can I tell you what I, th- what I think is blind belief? There are New Yorkers, I have friends like this, this is what they believe. They believe that they are the product of randomness. That, they've, that over billions of years they've evolved, they've come up, there's been no divine z- design, there is no authority over them, they just randomly have come from insignificance. And yet when we die, we just sit in the ground and we go to insignificance. And yet they really believe that they can still have significance in the middle, which doesn't actually logically go together. You can't say, but people do, you come from insignificance and you're going to go to insignificance, but you can have significance right now. That one day, you know, the, the star, that, the sun that is the closest to our earth will go away and everything else will go away, but live as if it actually matters right now. That, to me, is, takes a lot of faith to believe that. And compared to Christianity, I think personally it takes too much faith. See, Christianity says, no, there's evidence, there's truth, there's, there's a reality here you can get to. Jesus says, come with your questions, but stay for the answers. First point, come with your questions. Second point, Jesus shows us the answer. At Redeemer Lincoln Square, we value questions and the people who ask them which is why we hold a time of question and response, or Q&R, after our Sunday worship service. It's an opportunity for anyone to text in questions and then process responses alongside our pastors and other members of our church community. If you have questions that you'd like to process, feel free to email us at lsq at redeemer.com or Join us for our virtual worship service on YouTube every Sunday at 10.30 a.m. Eastern. You can find our YouTube channel 
at lincolnsquare.redeemer.com slash YouTube. Where do you see that? Go back to our text. After Cleopas works through what he's been working, th- what he's been going through, after he, he gives his account, the gospel according to Cleopas. What does Jesus say? Does Jesus say, eh? Does he say, no, you, you, you're wrong? No, look what he does. Look at verse 25. What he says is not, you need to read, read the Bible more. He says, how foolish are you, how foolish you are, and slow to believe all, the prophet, all that the prophets have spoken. Now, what is going on there? When he says that, this is, this is important. He's not saying you're just not reading your Bible enough. You don't know enough information. He's not actually going there. What he's saying is, Listen, you are coming to the Bible, but you're not coming in the right way. In other words, your problem isn't the content, it's your heart and how it's engaging that content. Because here's the problem, I think we think that we come to the Bible neutrally. But again, Cleobus uh, shows his hand. Look how he reads the Bible in verse 21. In verse 21 he says, we had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. That's a, that's a clue. Cleopas is reading the entire Bible through the lens that Israel is what it's really about. And he's an Israelite, which means what the Bible is really about is me. He's reading it me-centrically. And before you start poo-pooing him for doing that, how do people today, modern world, how do we read the Bible? Most people, we come to the Bible and go, what can it say to me today? What might it be telling me? I've actually, have you ever seen this? I've seen people do this. You know this is you too. People have opened the Bible and they kind of like flip through it like this and they go, I'm going to go right there. The noose is around your neck. <laughs> you know, people have done that. They, th- they think it's a, it's a way to say, no, I'm going to let the Bible tell me what I need to hear. But what's really going on in that moment is you're saying to yourself, what can I get from it? And even that phrase shows a you, a me, centrality. But look what Jesus does. He shows up in one of the more profound statements in all the Bible in verse 27, the very bottom of, our, of page 7. He says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures. One of the most profound uh, phrases in the Bible because um, of what he's getting out there. And this is, let me, try to, let, me, let me try to say it this way. It's actually kind of weird if you zoom out for a second. Jesus was just raised from the dead. He just conquered death. And the first thing he does is he does a Bible study with some random people on the side of the road. And if you think that's just Jesus being weird, Jesus being Jesus, it's not in our text, but later on in this chapter, he goes to his own disciples and when he shows up, you know what he does? He opens up the Bible and he shows them about himself there too. Which is so interesting. You would think that if you would show up from the resurrection, you'd say, hey, look at me. No, but he, doesn't. he says, that's not how you're going to see me. He says, no, where you're going to find me the most is in Scripture. Maybe he would have turned to the pages of Exodus, to the sacrificial system. Maybe you flip there. And then maybe you would have flipped to Leviticus where it talks about the lamb needing to be slain for the sacrifice uh, for, uh, of sins. That someone has to die so that you live. Maybe he would have flipped to Numbers and said, hey, 
One can only live by looking up to that which is on the pole. Maybe he would have flipped to the other parts of the Bible and pointed out to where, he's, where he is. He would have said then, I'm the lamb who was offered for your sin. I'm the one who was lifted up on the pole for the remission of sins. Right? I'm the one who took that curse. Jesus, Jesus is the better David. He leads his people as the true king. Jesus is the better Moses because he's able to bring people into the promised land. Jesus is the better Esther who intercedes for her people. Jesus is the better Samson who lets the temple crash in on him to save his people, sacrifices himself. We can go through the whole thing. The whole Bible is like this. Jesus must have gone into every single facet of redemption, redemptive history and said, that's all about me. And that's why these disciples, when scriptures are finally open to, to them, that's when they can finally see Jesus. And what do they do, by the way? They go running. Look at the very end of our text, verse 33. They go running back to Jerusalem. They were going to Emmaus. They go back to Jerusalem. And what, they, what does it say here? It says, they found the 11. They went looking for the 11. Have you asked why there's only 11, not 12? There's 11, not 12, because who was the 12th? Judas. Where was Judas? Judas had left Jesus. Why did he leave Jesus? Because he was around Jesus, but he never saw Jesus. There are many people I talk to. They say, you know what, Michael? I could believe if I could just talk with Jesus. I would believe if I could just eat with Jesus. If I could just walk with Jesus. Judas had every single one of those things, and he never saw Jesus. What that means then is this. If the best way for you and me to see Jesus isn't to actually physically spend time with him, but to have the scriptures open to us, that means right now, today, we are not at a disadvantage being 2,000 years later. And the question I guess I want to ask you all is, do you really believe that? Do you approach the scriptures that you can today just as easily meet Jesus as back then? Does that animate our hearts? Does that move our imaginations? Does that, does that compel us to go there? Do you go to the text expecting to see Jesus? The truth is this. Many of you regularly, as your pastor, you come to me and say, Michael, I believe in Jesus. I just don't feel his presence. You know what's happening there? Maybe you're like Cleopas. Jesus actually is with you. You just don't recognize him. Maybe some of you are waiting for Jesus to show up right now, today. And he's already there. You just can't see him because he doesn't know what happens here. Jesus does not show up in the spectacular. He shows up in the mundane. What if we're looking for him in the glitz and glamour? Because that's what our life is all about. That's what the world does. Pizzazz, lasers, lights, action. Jesus shows up in the ordinary and the basic. When you find Jesus in the text, you know what ends up happening? Something pretty ordinary. You sit around, you think about it in your head. You might sit in a Bible study and discuss it with others. You might, in your daily prayer, uh, you know, uh, go to him. That's all ordinary. And yet what's so amazing is that what becomes extraordinary is that Jesus meets us in the ordinary. Jesus is so supernatural, he meets us in the natural. And I think that what this is, for me, this is so encouraging just thinking about this all week because... You and I will have a better time seeing Jesus in Scripture than actually seeing him in the flesh. 
In fact, if you probably saw him in the flesh, you'd have been just like them. You wouldn't actually recognize him. See him in scripture. Last point, how? How can that actually happen? He has to become real. Look at the the text here. The sign that this has become real to you, the sign that it became real to them, verse 32. Look at it. In verse 32, it says, we're not our hearts burning with us while he talked to us and opened the scriptures. We're our hearts not burning. The sign, you have this, is some sort of, it, it's, it, again, it's a little vague, but it's, it's there, is that there's a burning nature in your heart. That means this. Two people can go to the same exact scripture. One person reads it, and your heart can burst. Delight, be filled with joy. And that's another person can read the exact same text, nothing happens. Why? The answer is because words, what are words? Words are just images, they're symbols. Unless we infuse meaning into them, they don't have meaning in our life. We're not allowing them to hit us and impact us. So that's why one person can read the first line, the first verse of Romans 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. One person can read that, nothing. And yet, if we allow it, if we sit with it, if you give yourself a moment, maybe you've heard that line so many times in your life, but sit with it and just repeat it to your heart. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for me. Don't just personalize it. Go deeper. Go into your shame and, 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 and issues. There is now... No condemnation, Michael, for you, despite your failures as a father, despite your failures as a husband, despite your failures as a pastor. And if I let that, wow, hit me, there's a flame that begins. It becomes real. But I I know you, I know if you're me, you're still saying, yeah, 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 but how, but how, but how? There's a children's book called The Velveteen Rabbit. It's a little bit old now. And it's about a toy rabbit made out of velveteen talking to a toy horse. And there's this scene where the rabbit wants to know, what makes you real? And the skin horse replies, real isn't how you're made. It's what happens to you. When a child loves you for a long, long time, not just play with you, but really loves you, then you become real. I think what the Velveteen Rabbit is saying to us is if you want Jesus to be real to you, you first have to become real yourself. And the way that you can become real is you have to be loved for a long, long time. And you have to know you're loved. And if that happens, the more you know that you're loved, the more real he is to you, the more real you actually become. That means, please, whatever you do, do not walk out of here just having an intellectual concept about who Jesus is. Let our hearts burn and experience his love. Because if Jesus was really raised from the dead, then heaven is a world of love. If Jesus was really raised from the dead, think what might be the worst thing that could possibly happen to you. Death itself. You know what that means? Ultimately, in the resurrection, it means the worst thing that can happen to you is that you get to come to Jesus sooner than others. If this is true, then there will be no ultimate more sadness, no more death, no more disease. 
Whatever you've lost, we have, there are some great losses here over the past two years. The resurrection means it'll be found again. You and I will get a burning heart to see, by, by seeing. So we'll get a burning heart by seeing that God has a burning heart for us. How do I know that? Uh, there's a Sri Lankan minister, I heard this years ago. He, he put it this way. He said, if you get a cut on, uh, on your knee, actually anywhere in your body, if you get a, if you get a cut, and you, it doesn't heal properly, if it, if it gets infected, if it festers, in time, if your body does not fight that off, that, that infection, you die. Which if you think about it, it's kind of a crazy idea. One little sliver of a cut on your finger, one little germ in there, if, you, if your body does not fight that off, you're dead. There's a microscopic amount of brokenness can kill you. And yet, the question is, is why, don't, why don't we then live in fear of this happening to us all the time? And the answer is because at the site of that infection, there's a battle happening. There's a war happening. Go to the site of the wound of that infection, and you know what you're going to find there? Pus. Even the word, see, that's what I love about the word, pus. It just sounds gross. Because it's this yellow, gooey, clearish, I don't even know, because I'm not a medical person. But it's, it's, I try not to look at it. But what you think is gross is actually gorgeous. I would even say it's glorious. You want to know why? Because what that is... That yellow pus is the collective corpses of millions of white corpuscles who have died so that you can live. That they sacrificed themselves in the battle against the infection so that you can still be here today. See, God's burning heart for you is so real. He has placed the reality of all of the cosmos into every cell of your being, into your very body. That the idea that someone has to die so that you live, it's inside your body. It's inside your DNA. It's in your blood so that, here's this crazy thing, even if you don't acknowledge it, your body does. That you can only live because somebody else dies. Your blood testifies to how the blood of Jesus shed for you saves you. Because there's always a cost to brokenness. Something has to end so that we can begin again. And Jesus, what he did was, he took the price of the dead. Jesus, what, what Jesus is essentially saying is, I'm the ultimate version of your immune system. Who didn't just die for you physically, but died for you cosmically. That's why we can go from dead, death to life. Because the resurrection, what it's saying there is, in, that, in the resurrection, everything sad is going to become untrue. How do I know I can say that? Um, true story. A couple weeks ago, maybe, maybe it's about a month or two from ne- ago, this happened to me. I've heard stories of this. It's, it's never happened since, but it happened to me. I woke up from a dream, and I, I believe, I actually thought the dream was real. It's like kind of like inception kind of thing. I woke up, and it was actually a nightmare. I, I, had, I believed the nightmare was somebody in my family had died. And I've never had this experience again, but when I woke up, I, all, I woke up crying. Heart was, was pounding. It felt like the world was over. And, I, and, and it was like this for, for minutes. I, and I, I, had, I got out of bed and I walked around convulsing, crying, not, 
not realizing the truth. And, and as, you know, I think as I woke up, I, I, I kind of went in some bedrooms, looked around, and I said, oh, that didn't happen. The next morning, I actually started telling everybody I could talk to about that dream. Which some of you are like, that's kind of weird. Why would you want to go to that dark place? Why would you want to do that? And the reason why is because it wasn't real. Talking about it allowed me to actually enjoy my family more. Talking about the brokenness that wasn't actually real, that had been, that had been changed, brought a new type of joy and gratitude and delight that I actually— in fact, I had—the day before, I still had them, but I wasn't delighting them the way that I was now. It is the same thing in the resurrection. That if the resurrection is actually true, and everything sad's going to become untrue, then right now, your broken life, the evil and suffering that you've gone through in the past couple years— and that you may, it will go through, in the resurrection, it'll be like Mike's bad dream. It'll be like all the hurt that you've ever experienced will actually only eventually make the joy and delight that's coming in the morning that much sweeter. In fact, it's how the, power, the resurrection is so powerful, somehow, through the evil and suffering that you're going through right now, it will make the world better than if, it is if it, than if it had never happened in the first place. That's what's so crazy and amazing. That's why we can say, oh death, where is thy sting? That's why we can say that the resurrection means not some pie in the sky, oh, you know, one day everything's going to be fine. No, the resurrection means the, this world fixed. Only Christianity says this. Jesus was physically raised from the dead, which means you and I will be too. And so what I ask as we, to end, I'd like for you to allow our hearts to burn with the love of God the Father who is making you real. And he does that through the love of Jesus who put himself in the grave so that we can come out of it. Resurrection gives us that kind of confidence. Why? Because here's the thing. Anything you're losing right now in the resurrection, if you really need it, it'll come back. And you know what? If you lost it in, you, in, you, in the resurrection... It's not there. You never needed it. That's assurance in this life that can actually give us power to move out and love and serve and care for the brokenness of this world. If, and maybe for some of you this hasn't happened to you yet. You can start today. You can start with asking. You can sit and say, Lord, Holy Spirit, come. That's what's so amazing in the, in the Bible. The Holy Spirit always comes to those who ask for it. And you can say, Lord, show me Jesus. Show me his love. Just begin today. If you're a Christian, if this isn't happening for you, ask yourself, what might I be doing that's keeping the joy at bay? Ask yourself, how might I not be allowing the resurrection into my life right now? But if you believe in him, if you use the scriptures to do so, we will see him and our hearts will burn. The Lord is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, it's been a hard two years. Suffering makes us look within. And that when we do, it's hard to see you because we're not looking out. We're looking for extraordinary things because we think that's where the power is. But Father, you come in such basic ways. And that's ironically, that's because, because you do, it allows us to actually meet you. Because we're in the ordinary of our everyday lives. We're in the mundane. Help us to not 
shortchange what you've done for us. Help us not to throw our hands up and say, why should I open the Bible today? Why should I pray? Why should I go to a small group? Why should I meet with other fellow Christians? Father, we have, we've built habits over the past couple years to stay away from each other out of safety. And there was, Father, there, there was a reason for that. I pray now we will come together for safety so that we can meet you by meeting each other. pray all these things in your name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to our church podcast. We pray that it can serve as a resource for you as you continue processing aspects of Christianity and growing in your faith. We hope you'll subscribe to our channel if you haven't already. And we invite you to check out our website to learn more about our church and how to get connected to our family. Just visit lincolnsquare.redeemer.com.